did you ever be, uh, this, is, this is not a sit there and make me feel like I'm the only person. When you were a kid, like a elementary age, do you remember ever having like the temptation walking through the grocery store or the gas station with a parent and there was a candy bar or a bag of candy there that you knew mom was not going to buy and you had the temptation to just take it? Anybody? Like, that was okay. A couple of us are honest. Yeah, other things like that for me, it was baseball cards. Well, that, that temptation for a kid is understandable. They see that candy they really want and their parents just aren't going to buy it because it's close to lunch or it's close to dinner or for whatever reason they say no. And there's that temptation to go, there's something that I want that I enjoy, so I'm just going to take it in a way that I, that I shouldn't in order to keep it. That's probably the same temptation that a guy named Idris Allen had. The difference is Idris Allen is a 38-year-old man who lives in New Jersey. But this past December, he walked into a 7-Eleven, walked to the candy aisle, and started taking candy and candy bars and filling his pockets full of them. The shift manager's seeing it all happen and, and realizes that you know, typically when you come to 7-Eleven to buy something, you don't carry it from the aisle to the counter in your pockets. And so the manager goes over and locks the door so the guy cannot steal the candy and get out of the store. But unfortunately for the shift manager, as, as Idris Allen approached the door and realized it was locked and the shift manager confronted him, Mr. Allen pulled a knife out and threatened his life until he unlocked the door. And he committed armed robbery for some candy. Two days later, Mr. Allen came back to the exact same 7-Eleven to the exact same candy aisle and started stuffing his pockets full of candy again. Two male employees saw him this time. They approached him. He pulled the same knife on them and ran out of the store with the candy. Robbed the same store twice in a matter of three days. And the next day he came back. Same candy aisle, same 7-Eleven, putting Reese's peanut butter cups all in his pocket. A female employee approaches him He pulls the knife on her. He now has to his name three counts of armed robbery and three days of candy from a 7-Eleven, which is crazy. And then 14 hours after that, he came back to the same 7-Eleven, pulled the same knife as he was going out with his pockets full of candy for the fourth time in four days. It was after that when they caught him, the police caught him with the candy and the knife, and, and he's Going to jail for Reese's peanut butter cups. Uh, you know, I mean, that, that crazy? That, that's the, but that temptation, you know, that makes sense for a little kid. doesn't make sense for us. We go, man, Reese's peanut butter is not that good. Like, to spend 20 to 30 years in prison for? Come on. Not enough to pull a knife on somebody. But for, I mean, I love a candy bar. Some of you probably do too, but let's be, let's be honest. I think it's safe to say that when we talk about temptation, for the extra piece of cake at the dessert table or the temptation for a teenager to take a candy bar is not close to the same temptation when we're talking about sexual temptation. Just a different world. I mean, maybe for an elementary schooler for sure, but for adults and for teenagers, temptation in in sexual sin is way more than cheating on your diet. I mean, that's part of the inundation of media that we get. Ed Sheeran has a song that's on the radio now. These are the lyrics. Hit that slide. Part of the lyrics are, I'm in love with your body. And last night you were in my room, and now my bed sheets smell like you. 
He's not talking about a Reese's peanut butter cup. Like, if, you're, if your sheets smell like chocolate and peanut butter, it's time to just wash them. You know, that, that is, it's, it's a different world. It's two different types of temptation. Sexual temptation is going to be much more difficult for us. And for a guy, for a male, and ladies, I'm not trying to discount sexual temptation in your life, but it's raised to another bar because of the way God made us. God made us to be visually oriented, to be visually stimulated, which I say all the time is why when you walk in the mall, there's a Victoria's secret and there's not a Victor's secret. There, I mean, it's not the same thing. We're made different. And so when we have all of these messages inundating us from storefronts to advertising to what we talked about last week, internet to movies, television, songs, we have the, this message over and over and over again that, about sex that, that helps temptation come on a regular basis. And when we have those messages over and over, it does several things. It desensitizes us to boundaries. Things that normally we would have said, that's a line or that's a danger. It doesn't seem so dangerous anymore because it's become commonplace for us. That makes sense? It it allows us to see these messages, sexual situations, as the norm. And you can see that by looking back to the history of television. Early on when husbands and wives in a TV show, although never shown in their bedroom, inside their bedroom had two twin beds next to each other. Even though that wasn't the practice of married couples in that day, that was how, that, that, TV was that way. And when, when there was a bed that was a common bed, a queen size or king size bed, that was almost scandalous to TV. But now think about what you turn on just on the regular television or television mature or whatever that's not HBO, it's Showtime, Cinemax, just regular TV channels that come in through cable or satellite. The, the, the norm has changed because we just get it all the time. Then that also causes us to put ourselves in situations that we shouldn't be in. Now, I'm not just talking about teenagers, I'm talking about adults. causes us to put ourselves in situations that we should have never been in because our boundaries have been desensitized and everything seems so normative, and all of a sudden, we have unknowingly set ourselves up in a much more dangerous place for sexual temptation. And so it's the world that we live in. And so this week, we want to talk about with students, and and this week in your own time with the Lord and our time here together this morning, we want to talk about sexual temptation and what, what can we do to protect ourselves, to protect our students from getting in trouble. Part of the problem is sexual temptation is tied to our very own biology. Sex causes uh, an oxytocin release in the brain. It causes an endorphin rush uh, that feels good, that that changes our demeanor, changes our attitude even. Studies have showed that the same amount of, of endorphins are released in your brain during a sexual encounter as they are if you and I went out here to the bridge today and went bungee jumping off of it. That's quite a rush. I mean, I'm never going to bungee jump. But, I mean, for, that, that's why people do that. Nobody pays money to jump off a bridge with a rubber band tied around their leg just because they want to experience. There is a rush that, that, of that free fall and going towards the ground at that kind of speed. The brain releases chemicals that creates this high. It's also the same chemicals that are released in a couple other things, extreme sports, which bungee jumping kind of right along those lines. It's the same uh, happens when somebody is using drugs. Drugs cause an endorphin rush in the brain. 
And so when we talk about a runner's high or an extreme sports person who has to keep going for that next extreme sports rush or a drug addict that is addicted, it's a biological thing that's happening in the brain where your brain is craving that rush again and sex creates the same rush. You, you, You might get a rush from stealing a Reese's peanut butter cup but it's not going to be the same rush from sexuality. And so what happens as, we, as we're tempted and we place ourselves into uh, situations where temptation is stronger and if and when we give into that temptation and have that sexual experience, whether it be internet, whether it be an affair, whether it be whatever that, that may be, that endorphin rush is something that our body begins to crave again. And so the next time you find yourself or your student finds themselves in a temptation-laden situation, they've already experienced the rush before, and now when they're in this situation, their body begins to biologically prepare for that rush again. That's why people, some people think, and this is a mistake, and I don't know how much, I, I listened to the message, I'm trying to think back to what Chris said, but people who think that pornography is going to satisfy sexual sin, like if if I watch pornography, I I won't be as tempted down the road. It's exactly the opposite because what happens is your body begins to get used to that sexual situation that creates that rush, and then when you find yourself in a real-life situation of temptation, your body biologically starts to kick in and starts moving toward that, and you will literally crave it similar to how an addict craves drugs. So when we talk about sexual temptation, for many of our students, especially if they've been involved in pornography or they've been involved in, in other sexual encounters, it is not as simple as saying, just don't do it. It's, and as parents, we've got to realize that. For you and for me, it's not just as simple as say, hey, I'm just not going to go there. If we've continued to put ourselves in temptation-laden situations and we continue to give in to that sin, it just makes it more difficult and more difficult. I was reading an article the other day about uh, an experience. I was like, well, I feel like I lived that experience. You probably have too. The guy was talking about being at a company picnic. They were outside and they were eating and barbecue. And uh, he was sitting at a table and there was a, one of his colleagues was at the table and a bee landed on the table while they were all talking. And the conversation was going on, but the author just kind of noticed his colleague reach over and take this empty glass bottle that had been sparkling grape juice. And the colleague took that bottle and put it over kind of where the bee was And unlike a fly or a butterfly that might have taken off when something large came towards it, as he put that bottle towards the bee, the bee didn't fly away. The bee actually climbed into the bottle. You've seen that happen. And the bee went down a little bit into the bottle because there's some of this great sparkling water at the bottom. He said his colleague put the cap back on. And the bee, unbeknownst to itself, was trapped. And he said, you could watch the situation play out. The bee didn't even realize it was trapped until several minutes later. The bee was so engrossed in what it was eating and enjoying that it had no clue that its life was now going to be ended. And then he reflected back on this, and he said, I thought about why. Why did my colleague do that? He said, well, it's because my colleague doesn't like bees. Colleague didn't want to be stung, doesn't like bees being around, and so killed the bee, trapped it, threw it away later. No chance of being stung, no chance of being bothered. And he made the 
connection. Why, why is it that Satan tempts us? Because he hates you. Because he doesn't want his mission stung by you and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so unlike a butterfly or bee that flies away, I mean, a butterfly or a fly that flies away, we often like the bee, and Satan brings temptation along and says, hey, check this out, something that he knows you and I love, something that he knows that, that we're wired with. So for a female, Satan is probably not going to bring somebody along to tempt you sexually that, that's just good looking and that alone. It's probably gonna be somebody in your office or somebody that connects to your emotions. For a guy, it's much easier. Satan knows that we're visually oriented, so he brings that temptation. And his whole goal is to get us to walk in so he can screw the cap on and we be trapped and leading towards our own destruction. So you need to understand that that analogy of the bee, that is what's happening to you and to me and to our, our teenagers every day because there's an enemy out there who hates you, realizes the good gift that sex is that God has given us, and is perverted in order to trap, kill, and destroy you. And so this week, as we talk about temptation and, and how do we deal with it, I want you to understand this. Wise people run from sexual temptation. They don't run towards it. They don't hang out near it. They don't skirt and walk around the, the outside of it. They literally run from temptation because of how powerful it is, and they understand the damage that it can do. So this week, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 39. So if you have your Bible, flip over to that first book of the Bible. We're going to read about a guy that if you grew up in the church, you undoubtedly have heard of. It's a guy named Joseph. Joseph is connected to the great patriarchs of faith. Uh, again, if you, if, if you grew up in Sunday school, you probably knew, know this, but want to kind of put the scene together for those of us who may be connecting the dots. Early in Genesis, we get introduced to Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. He's the one we talked about two weeks ago that took his son Isaac up to the mountain to, when God called him to sacrifice his only son. So you have Abraham, his son Isaac. They were the beginning of the people of God, the Jewish people. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. They're twins. And then the line goes through Jacob, and Jacob has several sons. At one point in time, the youngest, he, he later becomes the second youngest because Jacob has another son, but for most of the growing up years, Jacob's youngest son is a kid named Joseph. Joseph is his father's prized possession because all of Jacob's other sons were born to his wife Leah or to maidservants, but Joseph was born to his favorite wife, his beloved wife, Rachel. And so Rachel's had one child, it's Joseph. So not only is he the youngest, but he comes from the woman that he fell in love with the very first. And so you might know the elementary school stories. We call it Joseph and the Coat of Many Colors. Um, we know that, that Jacob gave Joseph a, a very expensive uh, coat that the other boys didn't get. So there's jealousy. Joseph also is going to be used by God throughout history. And one of the things that Joseph has the ability to do is interpret dreams. God has given that. God interprets dreams for Joseph. And Joseph has a couple dreams about how his brothers will one day bow down to him. And he has another dream about how one day his, his brothers and his father and mother will bow down to him. And like any little brother would do, he goes to his older brothers and goes, guess what God has said? You guys are all going to be my servants one day. And you can imagine how well that went over with the older brothers. 
they're out in the field working, taking care of the sheep. Joseph's home with dad because he doesn't have to work like the other brothers does. And dad says, one, Joseph, I want you to go check on your brothers. So Joseph goes out and he's coming along. Here comes the favorite son in the nice clothes who's had dreams and told everybody about how great he is. And as he's coming, the brothers make a decision that they're going to kill Joseph. That's how much they hate him. The brother Reuben says, listen, we're not going to kill him because that would be wrong. We're going to, look, there's an empty well. Let's throw him down in this well. We'll Throw him down in the well and um, we'll leave him there. Reuben's intention was to come back and get Joseph out later as the oldest brother. But before that, and they do agree, we won't kill him, we'll throw him down the well. Before they can leave and Reuben can come back to save the day, a band of slave traders comes through and the brothers go, why should we leave him here? We can make some cash off of this. And before Reuben can do anything, they pull Joseph out of the well and they sell him to some slave traders. And he disappears from the family. Well, Joseph's story picks up and goes crazy from there. He gets bought by a man named Potiphar in Egypt who is a very influential man. And Joseph uh, not only gets bought by Potiphar, but because Joseph has the blessing of God on his life and Joseph has tried to be faithful, Joseph begins to rise to prominence. And we pick up Joseph's story there. So let's go to chapter 39 and look in the first couple of verses, 1 through 6. It says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought, brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. So Joseph is stripped away from his family. And that, that's a bad thing. But outside of that, things are going pretty well for Joseph. So yeah, he's, he's in Egypt and he's in Potiphar's house, but he's got a great job. His job gives him a lot of freedom. I mean, he's in charge of Potiphar, the Pharaoh's official, the captain of the guard, all of his house, all of his money, all of his affairs. He's got everything. He is like, he is like the guy to the captain of the guard, so much so the scripture says Potiphar didn't worry about a thing other than what he was having for lunch that day. That's, that's all because Joseph took care of things. And not only did Joseph take care of things, but God began to bless that house. And Potiphar's portfolio started to grow and, and the morale lifted with the other people that worked in Potiphar's house and, and things are humming along fantastically. And Potiphar's going, man, this is, the greatest, this is the greatest guy I've ever had serve for me. So Joseph's doing well. He's eating well. He's dressing well. He's got power. He's got influence with people. He's making connections with some of the most powerful people in the known world. Things are going fairly well for him despite the fact that he's been taken out of his family. And look at the second half of that verse. It says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, which just isn't fair, right? I mean, he's got power. He's got leadership. He's got the blessing of God. 
And then scripture records for us, lets us know that he's got a great body and he's handsome. Like, he's the guy that all of us hate. Uh, you know, he, he's got everything. Good looking kid, muscular. Now look at verse seven, <clears throat> what happens. And after a time, the master's wife, Potiphar's wife, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. So everything's going well, and all of a sudden, trouble in the form of sexual temptation enters. Got a good-looking guy, handsome guy. Now, here's what I'm going to suggest. We don't know this. We, didn't, we don't have pictures of Potiphar's wife. I'm going to suggest to you that she was probably a very good-looking woman. Because in that day and age, arranged marriages were commonplace. And if Potiphar has found himself to be the captain of the guard and an official of Pharaoh, he undoubtedly comes from a, a family of influence. He, he's a mover and a shaker. He's got people who know people. And probably, as he was a growing up, just like if, if you wanted to have an arranged marriage for one of your kids, you would be looking for an attractive young man or attractive female because that's a good-looking kid or she's a cute girl. That would make a great husband or wife for my kid. More than likely, Potiphar's wife was good-looking. And so Joseph has power, freedom. Nobody's overseeing him. He's overseeing everything. And this woman comes to him, this attractive woman, to a young man. And this is, this is the PG version. She says, lie with me. You know, she's not talking about a nap, right? I mean, yeah, this is Bible PG version. Sexual temptation has now come full center with this young man. See what happens next in verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? There's not a lot of 20-year-old men that have power and the feeling about themselves that comes with that. There's not a lot of 20-something-year-old men that go to the gym and work out and go, man, I've got a great body and I, I know that girls like me. That when a very attractive woman comes to him and says, I want you to have sex with me, refuses at least not in the secular world. But I want you to notice what Joseph's response was. He has this great respect for Potiphar. And he says, Potiphar has given me everything that I have. He's not withheld anything from me except for you because you're his wife. There's ultimate intimacy between you and him. And I, can't, I, can't, I can't invade that. But here's what else Joseph says. I don't know if you caught it. He says, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, Joseph had knew, knew what most of us inherently know, but we don't think about in the midst of temptation. That sexual temptation is not just about sin against your spouse or a teenager's future spouse. Scripture says sexual sin is sin against your own body. It's also sin against God. It, that raises the stakes. We need to understand this. Sexual temptation is the type of temptation that can be a game changer for anything and everything. It, it, Sexual temptation, you have an affair, it might ruin your marriage. It will certainly cause difficulty in your marriage. It could cost you your career. It could cost you your finances and your income. It could cost you, if there ends up being a divorce, how much money you live on as you're sending 
half to the family. It affects your kids. It affects your grandkids. The, the generational sin might even pass down to great-great and great-great-great-grandkids. It affects your church. It affects everybody. But most importantly, Joseph gets it. It, it, it affects your relationship that you have with God himself. And so Joseph realizes that this temptation, and don't think for a minute that Joseph wasn't interested. Because he was a 20-something-year-old guy probably. He's a young guy. He was very interested. But he understood that the stakes here are raised to such a level that I cannot, I cannot even think about this. And he says, no, there's, 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 there's no way. I cannot do that. That would be a horrific thing. Because he understood this gift that God had given of sex. And how important it is. And when we give in to sexual temptation, we take this gift, this great gift that God has given us, and we just toss it. Several years ago, we were in uh, Mexico. My parents uh, made this decision a few years back, almost 10 years ago now, that every other Thanksgiving, they take our family on vacation. I've told you stories about that before. They take all three boys and their kids and family, and we go. And one year, we were in uh, Mexico, and we were at the beach, and my, my brother, some of you might know Brian, he uh, leads worship for us on Wednesday night with some students and used to lead uh, in the worship services, works down here in the, with our students. His son, who's now in college, was like a junior high boy. And they're out there at the beach, and Brian went into this gift store and bought a ring. Um, and, and he went down and sat down with Devin, my nephew, and they had this father-son moment, uh, kind of this coming-of-age manhood talk and son you know, you're becoming a young man and expectations change and God's plan for you is going to be unfolding and, and, and going through that very spiritual, emotional moment. And he says, and I, I have this ring for you because I want this ring to be a reminder to you of this conversation and what God is doing in your life as you've become, you're becoming a young man. And he gives Devin that ring and they, we weren't there. They hug, cry, I guess. I don't know. You know, I mean, I would. We'd go about the rest of the vacation. Like a day later. It might have been later that afternoon. Devin comes up, again, junior high boy, like seventh grade boy maybe, comes up to my brother and he's like, Dad, I lost the ring. My brother's like, what? What, what do you mean you lost the ring? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. And so Brian thought, well, maybe, I mean, it looked like it fit. Maybe it was swimming and it came off in the ocean. He's like, well, how did you lose it? The seventh grade boy says, well, I was, I was sitting in the sand on the beach and I took it off and I was burying it and then finding it. And then burying it, and then finding it, and I buried it, and I can't find it. You want to go help me find it? My brother's like, you don't know where you were sitting on the beach. Like, I, no, it's gone. And so it became this great moment in the story of our family, because my brother, who's very funny, like, has turned the story. He's like, yeah, he's like, I want you to know, he told Devin. He's disappointed. And I mean, he understood me. He said, you know, this, that, that was an important moment. That was a special thing that you treated like it was common. And he said, one day you're going to be like, Dad, I want a car, and I'm not buying you one because you're going to take the keys, throw them in the ocean, and be like, Dad, I lost my keys. You know, and then, I'm sorry, Dad. But it was this, you know, this, this precious moment that was gone like that because of foolishness. And that's what Joseph gets here. God has given this gift of sexuality. He even recognizes it between Potiphar and, his, and, and her and his wife. He recognizes how special it is, and he says, listen, I'm not going to bury it and walk away from it. I'm not going to fling it in the sea. This gift is important. It's special, and I'm not going to mess it up. But temptation tells us, you know what? If you bury the ring, 
you can dig it back up. And it doesn't, it's Satan and the bee. It's the bee and the grape juice. It, it, it's, it doesn't happen that way. Let's look at what happens next in verse 10. And she spoke to Joseph. He said no. She spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Now, what you see, there's two tricks of the enemy here. What happens after Joseph says no, he, he, he wins over that initial temptation, but we see in this verse the way Satan works. One of the ways Satan works is he comes after us with temptation day after day after day. If you walk into, a, 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 I don't know, wherever you'd be for Joseph, whatever room he's in, and a beautiful woman comes up and says, hey, I want you to sleep with me, that may not be an everyday occurrence. And so the red flag goes up, and you go, wait, what? Like, I, what? I don't know what's going on here. All of a sudden, you, your, your senses are alerted. You're, you're paying attention. And it's easy to go, no, that's dangerous, and to run. But what we find out here, she comes to him day after day after day after day. And what happens when we, when we find ourselves in temptation, again, we don't, some of us are going looking for it. Talked about pornography on the Internet last week. Some of us are, we're, we're going to that temptation. Or we're putting ourselves in the hotel bar while we're on a business trip or things like that. Some of us are going to temptation. Even if we don't go to it, it's coming to us every day, especially as guys and, and a media that inundates like we talked about earlier. And what happens is, is that temptation comes day after day after day. Satan understands that, that it just becomes, what we talked about earlier, commonplace. And all of a sudden our defenses go down. And the next thing you know, we're cozying up to temptation because it became more normal because it was day after day than we did the first time we saw it and ran from it. You know, Satan rarely, Satan rarely tempts you to jump into the deep end, right? You're a kid. Most kids aren't like, when they're getting in the pool, they don't swim very well. Let me go off the diving board. They go into the shallow end, and they work their way as they mature towards the deep end in the diving board. Satan, Satan realizes that. Satan rarely is going to come to you with something that is life-shattering on day one, moment one. What he does also is what we find here in the second thing in verse 10. says she would not, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. He wouldn't even go into the room. When she said, well, hey, let's just go get lunch. Let's just watch some TV. Okay, you want to have sex? That's fine. No, no sexual temptation. Let's just go... Let's just go out to the movies. See, that's the other thing that Satan does in temptation. Because he knows you're, you're less likely to jump into the deep end than you are to wade into the shallow end. So the temptation is, let's just be together, Joseph. Let's just spend some time together. Let's just go eat lunch. Because you know what happens? I get more comfortable. And as she approaches the sexual issue day after day, and I become more comfortable with her, all of a sudden it is much easier to give in to sexual temptation. It's much easier to climb into the bottle. It's much easier to see tragedy happen in our lives and we don't even know it. And so we see in Genesis chapter 39 how Satan works, how he tempts. Spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with him. Now look at verse 11. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house. There was no accountability. That's not Joseph's fault in this story. For us, if there, men, if there's no men in the house, if there's no guys surrounding us, and ladies, this is the case for you too, I can really only speak 
from the power of sexual temptation from a male point of view, from experience. I understand it intellectually from a female experience. So let me just say to the guys, guys, when we have no men in the room, when we have no accountability, when we don't have any guys, like we said in week one, that we're talking sex with, not in, not in an unbiblical way, but we're not having real talk with some brothers. One day when he went in the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, verse 12, she caught him by his garment. She grabbed a hold of him saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Wise people run from sexual temptation. Joseph was not going to have a conversation with her. Joseph was not going to sit down on the couch and watch TV with her. Joseph, when sexual temptation came and she grabbed him and the moment was right in front of him, his only alternative and his best alternative because there was no one there to help him was to run out of the house. And he left his cloak behind. And I'm gonna tell you this, it didn't go well for him in the short, short term. She ends up offended. She ends up hurt and cries out and the men of the house come and she's holding his jacket and she says, Joseph tried to rape me and when I screamed, he ran out and left his coat. Now here's the interesting thing. Historically, we know when Potiphar finds out, Joseph should have been executed. But he's not. He's placed in prison. Tells you something about how Potiphar thought about Joseph and or possibly how Potiphar felt about his wife. But Joseph does the right thing. He flees sexual temptation and in the short term, he's penalized for it. He's He's put in prison. I want you to know, doing the right thing, even when it comes from fleeing sexual temptation, as adults, it could cost you. It could cost you a promotion. It could cost you a lot. It could cost our kids a lot of things. We've got a college student just the other day. I sent a text to encourage because I found out part of the story. He's he's a, a, a college young adult who has chosen to be sexually pure. Some of his college friends found out about it and started making fun of him because he's a virgin. There's, there's difficulty in the short term. He's not a college guy that wants his college friends who are sleeping around with every girl and every sorority or whatever making fun of him because he's been sexually pure and following Jesus. It's difficult for a college-age kid. It's difficult for a high school kid, a junior high kid. When everybody else seems to have experienced something that I want to experience and all the cool kids are doing it and I'm not, it's difficult in the short term. But if you fast forward to the end of Joseph's story, which we can't read because we're out of time today, what we find is Joseph's faithfulness through Potiphar's house, Joseph's faithfulness while he's in prison, ends up getting him, God using those situations to put him in a place where he's not in charge of Potiphar's house, but Joseph ends up in charge of all of Egypt. And during a worldwide or area-wide famine, Joseph becomes the most powerful person besides Pharaoh in the entire known world. I'm going to say to you this. Had he not been had he not ran from sexual temptation, that blessing of God would have never rested on him. Wise people run, they sprint as fast as they can in the opposite direction from which sexual temptation comes. So let's talk real quick, four things, I'm not gonna elaborate on, four things that you can talk about with your students and that you can apply to your life when it comes to how do I, how do I deal with sexual temptation. The first thing is this, love God and love people. I'm just throwing that in there because that's our vision statement. 
and helping others do the same, being our mission statement. Loving God and loving people is a part of discipleship. It's what Scripture calls us to do. What, what is the greatest commandment Jesus asked? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Christianity, following Jesus, summed up is love God, love people. But here's what happens. As you walk that disciple path every day, and as you love God tomorrow deeper than you did today, and you love your neighbor, you love people tomorrow deeper than you did today, as you grow in that area of loving God and loving people because you're taking discipleship steps every day to be in the Word, to be praying, to be a part of a small group, to doing things with your small group, to discipling your kids, to being involved in a worship service, to going on, all of those things that we do to take those steps of discipleship, it causes your love for God and your love for people to grow. And the deeper the loves for God and people are, the more likely you are to have a Joseph experience and sexual temptation comes that goes, I can't sin against you and sin against God. Right? That was Joseph's response. I can't sin against Potiphar and I can't sin against God. If you don't have a deep love for God and you don't have a deep love for people, the only person that you love is self. And when temptation comes, because you love self, it's jumping into the deep end. So it's just, it's daily discipleship of loving God and loving people that won't, tomorrow is not going to prepare you for temptation. You're not going to be prepared for temptation next Sunday. It's a lifelong process of discipleship of God, how do I love you better today? And God, how do I love people better? And that's found in, in walking with him and knowing him. And then when temptation comes, we're much better prepared for it. Don't hear me saying this, that because you, you love God and love people, temptation won't come. In fact, it may come stronger because you become more of a threat to the enemy. But temptation begins to, you have some tools in your tool belt to go, I can't do this because I don't want to sin against God. I don't want to sin against people. Here, here's the second thing. Second thing that we, we can do uh, is to run. That, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty simple application. That's what Joseph did. If you see it, go the other direction. I'm going to tell you this right now, and I'll tell students this. I, unapologetically, I, I, I sat down with our personnel committee. Our personnel committee chairman came in the other day because personnel committee just wanted to get to know our staff better because they, they go on and off. And she was asking some questions, and, and she said, hey, I understand. What, is, what is God doing in your life right now? And I started talking to her about regen that we're going through as a staff. And I said, that, God is using that to change me. And I said, so every, like, Monday... I sit down, and she'd ask me earlier, let me stop it. She'd ask me earlier, she's like, can I take notes, kind of our story, so I can tell the other personnel committee about your life? And said, yeah. So she's taking notes. And I, so I'm telling her what God said in my life. And I said, so every Monday morning, I sit down with our pastors, a group of men, and I go through regen like anybody else would do. And I say, I say, I'm Brett Levi. I'm a child of God. And I'm in recovery from lust, perfectionism, and workaholism. And she goes, oh, I'm not going to write that down. I said, you can write it down. I, I don't, I, that, that is, I know that. That is why my phone and my computers all have X3 software on them. Because I know that if I did not have those things on there, there would be moments where temptation would sit in and pornography would be there. And because I'm visually oriented, there would be a lure to it. And I would walk towards that bottle. I know I would. I know that my family, there's chains of addiction from alcohol. That's why I don't drink, because I know that I would walk towards that bottle, not the great bottle with the B. I would walk towards that, because there would be moments where there would be temptation. 
And so I set these things where I go, you know what, I'm running from it. Now, if you invite me over to your house and you want to have a glass of wine or a beer or whatever, I'm not going to run out your door because that's not a temptation any longer. It doesn't bother me. You, you can drink as much as you want. If you start getting drunk, I'm going to be like, hey, I'm, I'm one of your pastors. This is sin. Got to call it out. Then it's going to be awkward for you. It's going to be awkward for me. So if you want to get drunk, don't invite me to dinner. But if you want, you know, because I'm going to have to say something. I don't mind if people drink. It doesn't bother me one bit. But if I, if I walk into your house and you come out in a towel, ladies, like guys, that'd be just even, I don't even know about that. I'm going to leave because I know myself. I'm going to run from temptation. I don't want that there. I don't want the processes. I don't want in my brain. I don't want the images. I don't want any of that. And so step one, love God, love people. Step is to run. And then step three, this is not in the scripture. This is just encouragement. You got to rest. Some of us are living our lives so busy, 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 busy. You're literally exhausted. And let me tell you this. When you're exhausted, you can't deal with temptation as well when you're tired than you can when you're resting why God calls you to Sabbath. It's not the only reason, but one reason why God calls you to Sabbath, to recreate so that you're prepared to fight the battle. You know, we're in a spiritual warfare. Sexual temptation is spiritual warfare, and you can't fight all day long, every day, and not rest. So love God, love people, run, rest, and oh, let me tell you this. I talk about run, tell y'all a story, and this is, this is true. I want you to think about this. When you think of sexual temptation, if you can start thinking about like walking into a room and whatever type animal scares you the most being there and how you would respond to that, like if you walked into a room and there was a tiger, you wouldn't be like, oh, that's cute. You know, I was at Catalyst this week and they're telling the story, you know, about this news article. It was like lady mauled by pet cheetah. And the pastor was like, I didn't even read that. I'm, yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you have a pet cheetah, you're going to die. That, you know, that's, you walk in, and there's a cheetah or a lot, you're out the room. I have a friend who lived in Australia, and in Australia they have what are called huntsman spiders. Here's a picture of one, right? Listen, if I walk into a room and that's on the wall, I'm not taking a picture. It's not even dangerous. Like, they, don't, they can't hurt you. It does not matter. If the spider is bigger than a crab, I'm out the door, like, I am running. And my buddy told me, we were talking about this, and just the other day, and he was like, oh, it's not, it's not that big a deal. And I was like, dude, you've already told me that you were on the phone one day talking to someone, and one crawled up on your chest and across your face. And he was like, oh, yeah, that did happen. It was like it would happen once, and I'd burn the stinking house to the ground. Every bit, I mean, the kids were moving. There's just no, but... But we run, I jumped ahead because I wanted to show this with you before that. This is a true story. This is a picture that came to the Huntsman store. Hit the next picture. This is what happens when you find a Huntsman spider in your car. That's a true story from a news article. People drove, the car, freaked out, drove the car right into the water. Ah! And they're right, that's what I would be like. Love God, love people. Run like it's a Huntsman spider, a tiger, whatever it is that would scare you, a snake. Get rest. And the fourth thing, if you're in battle, temptation is accountability. That's what Joseph didn't have. Again, not his fault that the guys weren't there that day. But you got to have some people in your life that have the opportunity to ask you the hard questions that will take away the curtain in your life that you hide behind. 
You know, the, you know the curtain. Step out of it on Sunday morning. Hey, everybody, how's it going? He's going great. Yeah, love the Lord. Love the Lord. Been reading my Bible. Yep. Read uh, Hezekiah 17.9. Yeah, I love, love him. And we step back in the curtain to the, the, the stuff that we're dealing with in our life. You need some people that can help you not step into the curtain with you, pull that curtain apart so that you live in the light. Some people who will get you to the point where you can say, sexual temptation is difficult for me but I want to love God and love people in such a way that I don't sin against my spouse, my kids, the other person, the other person's spouse, the Lord, and my church, that I'm going to run from it, that I'm going to rest, that I'm going to have you in my life, that I'm going to be in a disciple path every day. There's a a book that was written several years ago. Um, It was called The Obedience Option. And this guy is telling a story in the obedience option about um, a young man that he was talking to that was dealing with sexual sin. And the guy just said, listen, it's, it's inevitable. I, 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 I like girls. It's going to happen. I get into moments, I mean, sex and sexuality, it's just irresistible to me. So I, I want to follow the Lord, but I, I just know it, it's too difficult in my life. And the guy who, who's in the story, I guess the author of the book, says, well, let me ask you a question. Let's say I, I came into your room right as you were about to start having sex with your girlfriend. And that irresistible moment was at hand. And he said, what would happen, and I'm going to change the story a little bit, but what would happen if I put a, a suitcase down on the floor and popped it open and there was $50,000 inside? And I said, if you will stop what you're doing that's currently irresistible, today, I'll give you that. And the guy said, oh, I'd take the cash. I'd take 50 grand. And the point was, then it's not irresistible. You just have to find something that you love better. If you love Jesus better than sex, sexual temptation becomes much easier to deal with. Let's pray.